morning. It's good to see everybody. Good to be in here in God's presence with you. If you have your Bibles with you, won't you go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. Today we begin part two of a series that I started last week on the power of the Spirit. I'm not going to recap everything I went over last week, and so if you missed that, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it because I believe it's important for you to know um, why I believe the Lord laid this on my heart for us to start this new year off with, and, and you'll hear a lot of that in that message. The whole gist is basically that we are in a time where we desperately need an infusion of supernatural power in our lives and in this church. And I believe there is something that God wants to do along those lines, that he wants to experience him and know him in ways that many of us probably never have before. But many people just aren't sure if something like that really is even possible today. I mean, we know that Christians in the past experienced things that can't be explained by anything other than a miraculous um, action of the Holy Spirit. We know that because we read about it in the New Testament, primarily in the book of Acts. But the big question that people ask today, the answer to which gets debated a lot is, are those things still possible today or were they only for those people at that particular time that's the first thing that we need to establish because if they're not for today then it would be a waste of time to even talk about them and this will be a very short series so let's begin by reading how it all started we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 and let me just say I understand that uh, the second chapter of Acts is a text that many people just like to avoid altogether like the plague. Because they think you start reading about this and you're opening up a can of all sorts of worms in a church. But I don't believe that any part of God's word should be feared if it's handled rightly. And so that's what we're going to do. And plus, if there is anything in God's word that is scary... It's the verse that says that those who teach God's word are going to be held double accountable for what they teach. And I do not want to be standing before God one day and him to go, why did you only talk about the, the safe parts of scripture? Why did you only talk about the things that were comfortable and nobody's going to get, you know, cause any controversy and all that? And you go, because I wanted people to like me? No, I, I don't want to do that. I mean, so... I believe we need to teach, you know, the whole counsel of Scripture. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. So let's all stand together as we <clears throat> read the word of the Lord. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of, as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. 
They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on the bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking right now, by your spirit, Lord, there's no other way for it to happen, that you would guide us in truth. Lord, let us see it. Lord, I pray for any preconceived notions that we may have had about any of this, God, would just, uh, we'd be able to lay aside and just open our, our ears to you, our minds, our hearts to what your word says. Lord, let us be lovers of your word this morning because that is the only thing we have to go by that we can rely on. And uh, so, Lord, let your will be done and everything that is said and done here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, usually I think when we hear the word Pentecost or Pentecostal, we automatically think of some weird charismatic people who speak in tongues. But Pentecost was originally one of the main observances and feasts of the Jewish religion. It was also called the Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, and it was to be observed seven weeks or 50 days after the most important Jewish festival of Passover. Now let me show you how these tie together in the gospel. The Passover, as most of you know, was an annual feast and celebration and observance of the time where the Israelites were, were let free from being slaves in Egypt. It remembers the night of the tenth and final plague that God brought on Pharaoh to pressure him to release the Hebrews. And on that night, God told Moses that he was going to take the firstborn of every male uh, of every household in the land. But those households that would take an unblemished lamb and sacrifice it and paint its blood on the top and the sides of the doorpost, if that was done, then that house would be spared. But in every other house, the firstborn male would be killed. Now, that was obviously a foreshadow of Jesus, who became the sacrificial lamb for us, who, as a matter of fact, just happened to die on the day of Pentecost. And so those who trust in the salvation that his blood provides, God's wrath passes over, and we are set free from the slavery of sin. 
Fifty days after the Passover feast, the Jews were to celebrate the Shavuot, which in Greek is called Pentecost. Pente meaning 50, those 50 days. The purpose of this observance originally was to celebrate the first harvest of the year, to kind of kick off the, the harvest season. But it also later included celebrating the giving of the law. When Moses came down from the mountain with the stone tablets that God himself had inscribed the Ten Commandments on, those stone tablets were the, the visual, physical, tangible evidence of the covenant that God had made with his people. So, for instance, if you were living back then and you were to tell someone God made a, uh, this big covenant with us, and they say, well, well, how do you know that? And they say, well, we've got these stone tablets right here that, that, that shows that. I mean, every time we look at these stone tablets, we're reminded of the covenant that God has made with us. And so, in your notes there, it says that Pentecost was to celebrate the first harvest of the year, or the beginning of the harvest season, and to commemorate the giving of the law, which was the tangible evidence of the Old Covenant, that it was in effect. Now, because it was such an important holiday, Jews from all over, outside of Israel, living in other countries, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate and observe it. And so during this time, you would hear many different languages being spoken of in the city. This is what was going on when the disciples gathered together in that upper room. And as soon as they stepped out, everything changed. What we read was just the beginning of what Peter said to the large crowd that had gathered there. Fifty days before this, Peter was one of the biggest cowards that ever walked on earth, denying even knowing Jesus. But now, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's preaching the gospel boldly and quoting Old Testament scripture better than any scholar. The Holy Spirit had empowered Peter to do something that he had never been able to do before. And it says that when he got done speaking, 3,000 people got saved right there on the spot. Now, here's why this happening on the day of Pentecost is so significant. In Luke 10:2, Jesus was talking to the disciples, and he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Now, when Jesus said this, I'm sure the disciples were looking around going, What is he talking about? I don't see any grains that are ready to be picked right now. Does, did he forget that we're fishermen, not farmers? But of course, Jesus wasn't talking about a physical harvest of grain. He was talking about a spiritual harvest of souls. And then, look at what else he said in John chapter 4, <clears throat> starting in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. 
Jesus is referring to everything that God had done up to this point throughout history, through the nation of Israel, as sowing seeds for a harvest that was going to be reaped. All the Old Testament heroes and the judges and the prophets were the ones that were laboring in the field here that Jesus is talking about. And then he tells the disciples that they are going to now reap what all these others have sown. The fulfillment of what Jesus was telling them there began on the day of Pentecost as they reaped 3,000 souls that first day. And continuing on from there, Acts 2.47 says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so there was a lot of reaping going on in this spiritual harvest that Jesus had foretold about. The Feast of Pentecost celebrated the beginning of the physical harvest season. And so it was ultimately about and pointing to the beginning of the spiritual harvest season which is the next point in your notes there. It was pointing to a spiritual harvest. And then the other thing that Pentecost celebrated was the giving of the law. When Moses came down the mountain with those stone tablets. In Jeremiah 31, God is announcing through the prophet about this new covenant that he was going to make with his people. And look what he says about it in verse 33. It says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And they will be my God, and I, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So how does God put his law, which was written on stone tablets, how does he now put that in people and write it on their heart? Through the giving of the Holy Spirit. The old feast of Pentecost celebrated the giving of the law, which the next point was pointing to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And just as those stone tablets were the visual and tangible evidence that God's old covenant was in effect, the supernatural actions of the Holy Spirit through God's people were the visible tangible evidence of the new covenant being in effect. And so what we see that was happening on that day was this supernatural empowering of the disciples was done so that they could effectively reap this harvest of souls. And they begin, as they began doing this, miraculous things began to occur. And they would preach the gospel, and those who would believe in it and get saved, they would then be filled with the Holy Spirit. And miraculous things began happening through them as well. In those early days of the church, the miraculous gifts and occurrences were the norm. I mean, they were even just expected to be done. This is not in dispute by anyone. Because we read the Bible and we see plainly that miraculous things happened among those who were taking part in the building and expansion of God's kingdom. 
People were speaking in languages that they had never spoken before. Others were praying for the sick and the lame, and they were instantly healed. People were declaring words of prophecy as the Holy Spirit was giving them utterance. They were quoting scriptures that they had never memorized before. They were given spontaneous understanding about the things of God that they had never been taught before. They were empowered with boldness that they had never had before. They were all doing things that they never would have been able to do without this supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit. But the question is, should we expect those same things to happen today? I mean, there's no doubt that it happened during the time of the apostles, but does God still operate this way today? This is what I want us to be able to answer biblically before we walk out of here today. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not concerned with what anyone in here has experienced in the past. Now, I'm not saying anyone's experience isn't valid, but I've heard plenty of people sharing their experiences and sensationalize them into things that really was not actually what it was, and I've heard people share experiences that they have had that didn't come close to lining up with anything that we find in God's Word. I'm not saying anyone else's experience isn't valid, but... If we're going to set a baseline here on where we're going, we better set it on God's word and not on somebody's experience. And so that's what we're going to be doing. So first, let's consider what we learned about Pentecost. It was originally about a physical harvest, which was ultimately pointing to the spiritual harvest season. The Holy Spirit was given to the disciples to the to to empower them to effectively reap this harvest of souls. So we got to ask, did that season of harvest come to an end at some point? In other words, has everyone in the world whom God intended to save, have they been saved? If the spiritual harvest season ended, well, then there's no need for you and I to witness or share the gospel with anyone, right? We are still in that spiritual harvest season. I don't believe that any of us would say that that has ended. I mean, we know that our mandate as Christians is to share the gospel with as many people as we know and call them into the kingdom and keep on doing that until Jesus comes back. That was the last command that he gave before he ascended into heaven, and he didn't give any stipulations or dates of when that was going to stop. If the original disciples needed that supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit to reap that spiritual harvest, and if we are still in that same harvest season today, should we not assume that maybe we need that power as well in order to reap this harvest of souls? I mean, if the supernatural gifts of the Spirit were valid and useful for them reaping that harvest then... I think it'd be safe to assume that they would be valid and useful for us to need to reap that harvest today that is still going on. We are still living in the season of harvest, and the new covenant is still in effect. 
If the new covenant is still in effect, which it is, well, I find nothing in the Bible, no biblical reason why there would not still be the tangible evidence of the new covenant being in operation. Now, some might say, well, Jason, you're just assuming. Is there anything in the Bible that we can look at where we don't have to apply some deductive reasoning in order to get there like we just did? Something concrete that just clearly says this is how it is or this is how it's not. Yes, good point. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be in chapter 12 and 13 quite a bit during this series because Paul spends so much of his letter talking about spiritual gifts in those two chapters. But look at what he says about spiritual gifts beginning in verse 8. He says, Love never fails, but if there, are, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And so he says plainly here that there will be a time where spiritual gifts will end. They won't be needed anymore. When is that? Well, he says when the perfect comes. He's talking about, of course, when Jesus returns and restores all things. 1 Corinthians 13 is the famous love chapter. After talking about different spiritual gifts in chapter 12, Paul uses chapter 13 to show that love is superior to all the gifts. And one of the evidences he presents for making that case is that there will be a time when the gifts become obsolete and their function will be fulfilled by something else. But love is going to last forever. It's not going to come to an end. There's nothing else that's going to fulfill it. Love is the ultimate fulfillment, and it will continue on for eternity for those who belong to Christ. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So now he's using an analogy to further uh, uh, illustrate his point that just like there was a time to do childish things, but that time ended with manhood, there will be a time for spiritual gifts to end as well. And when will that be? Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, the then he is speaking back to when he said the perfect comes in verse 10, but then Face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So he's saying it again. The time for it to end is when Jesus returns and we see him face to face. And so based on what Paul is saying here, we have the next point in the notes, which is that supernatural gifts of the Spirit are given for the time period between Jesus' ascension and his return. Between his ascension and return. Is that the time that you and I are living in today? Yes, it is. And so this clearly tells us that the gifts are still valid and useful today. Another reason we know that the gifts didn't just end with the apostles is because even during those early days, 
the gifts weren't evident just in the apostles. On that first day of Pentecost, it wasn't just the original 12 that were assembled in that upper room. Acts 1.15 says that there were actually about 120 people in all who were gathered there together. And Acts 2.4 says they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Stephen, the very first martyr, wasn't one of the apostles. Yet Acts 6.8 says that he, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Philip, not Philip the apostle, but Philip the deacon, went to preach the gospel in Samaria where it says he was casting out demons and healing the lame and the sick. God tells Peter to go to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and to share the gospel with him. Up to this point, this had only been limited to Jewish people, and so everyone assumed this was a movement that was specifically for just Jews, like everything else in the Old Testament had been. But God told Peter in a vision that he was going to go uh, share the gospel and Gentiles are going to be included as well. So he goes to this Gentile Cornelius's house and he preaches the gospel and the Holy Spirit fell on his whole household, everyone in there that were listening to Peter preaching. And it says that the Jews who witnessed it were amazed that the gifts of the Spirit were being poured out on Gentiles too. And they began hearing them speaking in other tongues as well, praise to God. And so a lot more than just the apostles were filled with and operating in that power. When we read the letters of Paul and others who wrote to these little churches that were scattered all throughout the world at that time, the gifts of the Spirit were just expected to be in operation there. To the church in Galatia, Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 5, Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you Do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. James, who wrote his letter to several different churches that was to be shared among them, told them that if anyone is among you is sick, let them call on the elders of the church who will anoint him with oil and pray for him, and uh, God will raise them up. It was not an exceptional thing for miraculous gifts to be in operation in New Testament churches. What would have been exceptional would have been a church that wasn't operating in the gifts. And if they weren't, the apostles would have been, something's not right over there. Let's go check that out and see what the deal is. And there is nothing anywhere in the Bible that indicates in any way that those gifts have ended and that they are not for the church today. What we do find are verses that tell us plainly that they are to continue, to continue until Jesus returns. Amen. Now, with that being said, let me just say that there are some things that did happen during that time that is, was specifically for that time for the apostles. I mean, all I've ever heard is it was either one or the other. It either all ended or it's all good today. No, there's actually a little of both going on. There were some things that were for that, but we're going to look at that next week. Um, A little teaser there for you to come back, right? Before we wrap this up today, there's one more text I want us to look at. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. 
Peter and John were on their way to the temple where they encountered the crippled man there who was begging for money. It's where they famously said, silver and gold, have we not? We don't have any money, but what we do have, we freely give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. And the man immediately jumped up and began leaping about, praising God. Of course, this caused quite a commotion. And so not wanting to let a captive audience go to waste, they preached the gospel to the crowd that had assembled there. And it says that 5,000 people ended up getting saved. The religious leaders get word of all this, and so they apprehend Peter and John, put them in jail, and then they bring them out and put them before them and, and uh, just start interrogating them about everything that was going on. And Peter speaks boldly to them, quotes Old Testament scripture and showing them that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that. And in verse 13 of chapter 4, it says, Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, talking about uneducated and untrained in the scriptures, they recognized them as having been with Jesus. And so once again, the power of the Holy Spirit gave them a boldness that they had never had before and spontaneously brought to their minds scriptures that they had never memorized before. And this is what the Spirit can and does do. And look what the story says next. I, I, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. When I first read this, when I was in college, right after I had fully surrendered my life to Jesus, I read this account right here in these verses we're about to read, and it was like something just caught fire inside of me. Starting in verse 23, it says, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And so here they are quoting Old Testament scripture again, which mentioned before, would not have been done among ordinary folk in that culture. I mean, it was only the Pharisees and Sadducees and lawyers, the, the scholars of Scripture were the only ones who were able to just quote Scripture like that from memory. And in verse 27, they said, they're still praying, and they say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. <clears throat> so last week I talked about these gaps that exist, that I believe only the Holy Spirit can bridge. Gaps in our own personal life. Uh, between like, you know, what we believe and what we actually do. Um, but I also talked about gaps that exist between different churches. And I said that historically there has been a huge gap between churches that have a high view of the sovereignty of God and churches that embrace the gifts of the Spirit. Usually you're either one or the other, but not both. But here we do see both of those coming together. <clears throat> They're acknowledging the fact that everyone involved in Jesus' death, it all happened 
according to God's divine plan. Jesus didn't die because of Herod or because of Pontius Pilate or because of the religious leader. He died because it was in God's plan for him to die. Everything that those people did that were associated with his death, they did it because they were being divinely guided by the hand of God. And in verse 28, they say, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. There's that word that everybody loves so much. Causes so much controversy. Predestined. The apostles were predestinationists. Put that in your hat. (laughs) And so what we can see here is that those in the early church had a very high view of the sovereignty of God. And then look what they say in verse 29. They say, now, Lord, take note of their threats. In other words, okay, God, they're coming after us. They want to keep us quiet. It's not going to be pretty. And today, if this prayer were being prayed in most American churches, what we would say next would be, okay, so protect us, God, so keep us safe, so don't let anything happen to us. Stop those bad people. But look what they ask God to do after saying, Lord, take note of the threats that they're making against us. They say, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, they're after us for preaching Jesus. So help us preach Jesus all the more and show the tangible evidence of his power operating through us. You've got Christians with the very high view of the sovereignty of God requesting that miraculous gifts be displayed through them. That gap didn't exist in the early church. Read verse 31. It says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Do we still need that in this day and time? Of course we do. And I would even say we probably need it now more than ever before. There are still threats against truth. There are still those who want to keep us silenced. There is pressure from every facet of our life to keep us quiet and to prevent us from doing anything to shake things up for the kingdom of God. It's not the threats from the political leaders as strong as it was back then, but it's something that I think is just as or or even more strong, and that is the pull of the world and all the minutiae that we get caught up in in our daily lives and these phones that our faces stay glued to and and Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and all this, this junk, this meaningless junk that keeps us quiet, keeps nobody from making any kind of waves at all for the kingdom of God. Those are the threats that are coming against us today. And how are we going to overcome those threats and obstacles? I promise you this, it's not going to be done in your own strength. Because if it could have been done in your own strength, it already would have been done. We desperately need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to do it through us. 
And I'm telling you right now, he is just as available to us today as he was to Christians back then. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, I do believe that we need your supernatural power now like never before. Lord, I know things like what I just talked about. Lord, the things themselves are not evil. It's just that when we allow ourselves to get so sucked up in the things of this world that we make absolutely no impact at all for your glory and your name, Lord, that's when it becomes a problem. Lord, if you were to say, how's that working for you, church? We'd say, not very well. There's something we're missing. We need something beyond our own ability. We need the power of the Holy Spirit that was made available to us. The night of Passover. The spotless lamb shed his blood. Purchase God's wrath passing over us. God, we want all of you, all of that you have made available to us. And Lord, I know that when we start talking about things like this, God, we've had experiences where things got sideways real fast. And people got hurt, and there's been error, and there's been abuse. But Lord, I pray that right now that our desire for what you want for us is greater than our fear of anything else. Lord, put that want to in us. Just let that fear wash away. Knowing that God, if you are leading us to it, you're going to lead us through it. And it's all going to be good. Because we're keeping our eyes on you and we're staying grounded in your word. And so, Lord, help us to embrace the things that you have for us this year and not just be content with the religious status quo, the same old, same old. It's not making any impact for you. Holy Spirit, would you come now? Make yourself known among us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.